Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 32. This is part three in a series about untangling bricks and sugar and ripeness in coffee. In episode 30, we talked mostly about sugar in coffee and how processing can impact the amount of glucose and fructose in the green seed. In episode 31, we talked more about bricks and the instruments used to measure it. We went through how winemakers use bricks and how there is a direct mathematical connection between the bricks of grapes and the alcohol content in wine. A connection that is not really relevant for coffee. I hope in the last two episodes I have convinced you that the connection between sugar and sweetness and bricks is weak at best. But the gaping hole, the thing that we have not yet talked about, is ripeness. How does bricks relate to ripeness? How does ripeness relate to sugar content? Okay, today's episode is a little longer than part one and two, but I will provide snack and bathroom breaks. Okay, so for your safety, keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times and wait until we come to a complete stop. Or, you know, just pause whenever you feel like it, because even I admit this is going to be a little bit dense. My preoccupation with how the coffee industry talks about bricks started when I was seeing bricks used as a substitute for ripeness. Seeing bricks as a shorthand for sugar content is one thing, but the connection to ripeness and quality is where I feel we have really gone off the rails. Several years ago, I was asked to speak at a conference for coffee producers in a coffee producing country. The topic was how to use yeast to control the coffee fermentation. It was an excellent event that brought together many producers from all corners of the world, and in addition to presentations, we also toured different coffee mills talking about coffee processing. In an industry that is notoriously guarded, this event was a breath of fresh air. I found everyone to be open, willing to share, and eager to learn from each other. And then, at the end of the multi-day event, when I was feeling all warm and fuzzy about the bright future of the specialty coffee industry, the hosts gave out refractometers to all of the producers as parting gifts. And just like that, I was back to reality. There's a lot of incomplete information out there, and we have a long way to go. At the time, the refractometer made very little sense as a gift. It was sort of like going to a video game convention and handing out cupping spoons. It was the first time I saw a gift being given from a coffee buyer to a coffee producer, but what was even more surprising is that over the next few years, this would become more and more common. Clearly, the organizers of the event care deeply about providing good information to coffee producers. Clearly, they are deeply invested in improving coffee quality, and yet, they too fell for the BRICS quality fallacy. Now we're going to finally talk about the topic that I have been teasing for two episodes. I mentioned a few times that in my experience, when some coffee producers who never measured bricks before suddenly start measuring, instead of improving their coffee quality, they find it can get lower. At the end of episode 31, I mentioned a research paper that finally looked at the relationship between bricks and coffee. It didn't just borrow what we already know from wine. This paper is a good one to start with because it's quite short. It has graphics that help illustrate the author's points, and it's very clear in its findings. 
This paper and all of the other ones I've mentioned in previous episodes can be found by joining Patreon at patreon.com slash making coffee. When you join, it helps me know that you guys want to hear more information like this and keeps me motivated to make more episodes. Remember, this is an ad-free and sponsor-free zone. The only reason this exists at all is because listeners like you support it. Oh, and another new resource I'm excited to share with you on Patreon is that I have added copies of my personal data collection sheets, the sheets I use with my coffee producer clients. If you're a coffee producer and you want to try and monitor your fermentation like I do, you can download the same sheets that I use for every single fermentation. So this is a pretty generic sheet. Some of the information on it may not be relevant to you, but I hope that it can serve as a guide to help you get organized tracking your own data or inspire you to, you know, borrow whatever you want and make your own data sheets. Anyway, back to the research. So this paper is titled Quality Spatial Variability of Arabica Coffee and Its Relationship with Bricks Degree and Fruit Reflectance. The first author is Samuel A. Silva. It's quite a mouthful of a title, and one tip I've learned is that to keep research papers straight in your mind, it's best to rename them, to give them an easier title so that you can, you know, very easily and very quickly refer back to them. So this paper, I call this one the BBC paper, which stands for Brazil, Bricks, and Color. So when you hear me say BBC paper, that's what I'm referring to. So in this paper... Researchers were studying the connection between bricks and coffee quality in Arabica coffee. What is widely agreed is that ripe fruits are strongly correlated to high quality, ripeness, and quality. We all agree that ripe fruit makes a quality beverage. The question is, where does bricks fit in? If the researchers could show that bricks can correlate to coffee quality, then we can also correlate it to ripeness. It's kind of a reverse engineering approach. Meaning, you think they could just directly connect bricks to ripeness, but ripeness has already been proven to be highly correlated to quality. So what the researchers are doing is trying to see if bricks correlates to quality, and if it does, then bricks must also correlate to ripeness. Unlike so many in the coffee industry, the researchers are not taking for granted that bricks is correlated to ripeness. They are testing that connection. But in addition to bricks, the researchers also looked at another variable the reflectance of ripe fruit. In a different paper from 2003, Pinto et al. found that red ripe fruits had a mean reflectance of 12% in the spectral range of 630 to 680 nanometers, while the overripe fruits had a reflectance of around 5%. In the visible spectrum, 630 nanometers to 680 nanometers corresponds to the color red. So basically, this is a complicated scientific way of saying that they were using light to measure how red the red fruit was. So instead of saying orange red or red red, they gave the red a number value. Therefore, more red, more ripe. You might expect as fruit gets riper for the reflectance level to increase instead of decrease. For example, if ripe fruit is at 12%, you might expect overripe fruit to be at 15 or 20% or something higher, more concentrated, instead of the lower, the 5% that the researchers found. But that's using our layperson common sense instead of science. I think it's important to remember that sometimes scientific findings can seem like they go against our common sense. Overripe fruit reflects less than ripe fruit 
Oh my gosh, you guys, try saying that. Overripe fruit reflects <laughs> less than ripe fruit. I just wrote my own tongue twister. Okay, let's try this again. Overripe fruit reflects less than ripe fruit because it reflects 5% because it is less red. As we know from experience, when a fruit is overripe, it tends to be more purple and brown or can even be black. So while overripe fruit is further along in the maturity spectrum, while it is more concentrated and darker in color, when it comes to the color red specifically, it reflects less red and therefore has a lower percentage. I mention this because it means that previous research has established that an instrument is able to connect the color of the fruit to the ripeness level. An ideal ripe fruit has a different color than an overripe fruit. This is very obvious and something that we can usually see with our eyes, but I think it's comforting for scientists to be able to say that the difference between a ripe fruit and an overripe fruit is a difference of 7% reflectance between 630 and 680 nanometer wavelength. If I ever make a t-shirt, this is what I would put on it. And that's probably why they don't let me design t-shirts. Anyway, now I'm going to read to you the materials and methods section of the paper. I love this section. This is where you get to judge the experimental design. This study was performed in the 2011 harvest season in Minas Gerais, Brazil. The climate is classified as highland tropical with rains during the summer and mean annual temperature of around 19 C with 12 C as the average low temperature and 26 Celsius as the average maximum temperature. The soil is classified as clayey to very clayey soil, which has been cultivated with coffee since 1999 with a variety red katwai planted using 3 meters by 1 meter spacing. Okay, so now we know where the study was done. We know the climate, we know the coffee variety, we know the type of soil and the age of the plants. This next section tells us how they took their samples. In each field, about 30 plants per hectare were sampled. In each plant, the cherry fruits of four branches were harvested by hand, one pair of branches on each side of the plant rows. The choice of these branches was random, so the collected fruits would represent the plant. The fruits from each field mixed together to form one composite sample. From each composite sample, 25 fruits were randomly taken, of which the reflectance was measured using a spectroradiometer. Using the same fruits, the Brix degree of the fruit juice was measured using a portable refractometer. After this analysis, the fruits were depulped and then dried to 11% moisture content. The coffee cup quality analysis was performed in accordance with the standards presented by the Brazilian Specialty Coffee Association, the BSCA. One thing I'm not sure about this paper is that since they took great care to use the same fruits for the three measurements, I think this means they took 25 cherries and pulped them by hand and then dried them and then I have no idea how they roasted them and then brewed a cup of coffee with only 25 seeds. Um, so this is one drawback of having such a short paper. They didn't really explain the roasting process or the brewing or the cupping. So perhaps the researchers made the smallest cup of coffee in the world or they had to pulp and roast and brew a different representative sample that was a little bit larger so that they could have all of those cups and then all of those um, replicates. So if you read the paper and you can figure it out or find something that I missed, let me know because personally I find this part pretty vague. Okay, so that was the experimental setup. 
Next, they took the results of all those measurements and made maps. The maps are important because they were looking at spatial variability as the title of the paper clearly states. Spatial variability is a statistical technique used in these types of studies when a quantity like bricks or fruit color is measured at different spatial locations. For example, several different coffee farms. So these researchers were covering a very large area. The researchers found that only the values of bricks showed spatial variability. This is kind of a confusing way to say that the bricks measurements they found were clustered together and had more connection to the sample location than to the quality of the resulting brewed cup. The biggest conclusion the authors found was that bricks values were not correlated to quality. They also confirmed previous research that shows color is positively correlated to quality. And this brings us to a very important point if you're a coffee producer. Bricks and cherry color are not correlated. This means that two different colored coffee cherries can have the same bricks values. This simple statement is often taken for granted. If you have a cherry that is uniformly bright red and another one that is red-ish but still has some yellow and maybe even a little bit of green, you intuitively know that one is more ripe than the other. You know that the uniformly red coffee cherry is more ripe. And we know that ripe coffee cherries will make higher quality coffee. We know that different colored cherries have different ripeness. That's why we sort out the green cherries and the slightly yellowish cherries and then also the dried purple ones and we sort those away from the bright red ones. However, if you're looking at bricks, both of those cherries can have the same bricks level. So using a refractometer, those two cherries would be equal. But we know they aren't. And this is the disconnect. This is one way that refractometers can get coffee producers in trouble. There's actually another worse offender, but I'll come back to that a little bit later. So in regards to this paper, it basically took very complicated statistical models to confirm what we intuitively know, that coffee cherry color is strongly tied to quality. In this study, the highest quality, meaning the highest cup scores, they were in the range of 85 to 87 points, this group, there were also in the areas that had the highest reflectance, meaning the most red color. And this is not surprising, right? You would expect the highest quality, the highest cup scores, to also be from the ripe fruit, the reddest fruit. The fruit that is not brown and not black and not green. What is surprising is that if you look at the maps, the area with the highest red color and the highest cup quality were also the places with the lowest bricks. So they were looking at less than 19 bricks. In the higher bricks areas, like 22 to 25 bricks, the cup scores were in the 81 to 84 point range. So not only is bricks not positively correlated to high quality, it's closer to being negatively correlated, meaning the higher the bricks, the lower the quality. If a producer in this area had previously been picking on red color, they could get an 85 or an 87 point coffee. But if they got external advice from a coffee buyer to modernize and use tools instead of their eyeballs, and they started measuring bricks with a refractometer, they would see that their best coffee was at 19. And maybe they would see on Instagram people boasting of getting 25, 26, or 27 bricks, and they would try to reach for that higher bricks in the hope of getting even higher scores and higher prices. But what this research shows, and what I can confirm with my experience, 
is that by trying to increase bricks numbers, coffee quality is more likely to be lowered. By aiming for a higher bricks, they would be doing more work, more effort to track and monitor, and end up with a lower quality coffee. I've seen this happen with various producers in my work, and the paper was able to observe and measure how this happens in a scientific way, but it doesn't give us a good answer as to why this happens. Why doesn't more sugar, for example higher bricks, correlate with ripeness? Logic and our taste buds tell us that riper fruit has more sugar than unripe fruit. Yes, but we've seen in previous episodes that bricks doesn't only measure sugar. Right? Here is the trap. The trap is thinking that bricks measures sugar, because if it did, then more sugar should be correlated to ripeness. But bricks is not sugar content. It's not absolute sugar content. It is a concentration. So put a pin in that, because we're going to come back to this um, in a little bit later. Another point, which is interesting, is that the tissue on the outside of the fruit has a stronger correlation to the cup quality than what's on the inside, right? The color on the outside led us to higher quality brewed coffee. And don't you think it's a little bit odd that the skin on the outside would be more strongly correlated to quality than what's on the inside? After all, a refractometer is measuring the juice and the mucilage of the fruit, both of which are physically closer to the seed than the skin on the outside. Third point that we're going to come back to a little bit later. Another point that I think is interesting when I read this paper is a reference to the work that Pinto et al. published in 2003, right? The 630 to 680 nanometer range. Here is a quote from the conclusion of that, that research. Quote, the researchers point out that coffee fruits present a color that is easily distinguished when the fruit is ripe, which allows their classification matching the color with the ripeness stage. End quote. So here is a similarity between grapes and coffee cherries. Both fruits start out small and hard and green, and as they mature into ripe fruits, they accumulate sugar, the acidity drops, they get softer, and they change color from green to red. And if they're not harvested in a you know proper window, they eventually turn dark purple and brown and completely dry out. What this research says to me is that coffee cherries give us a clear indication of when they are ripe and when they would make a good quality beverage. And it's not like we didn't know that red cherries make better coffee than green cherries. So the baffling thing to me is that Briggs is trying to solve a problem that coffee didn't have. We brought new instruments to fix something that wasn't broken. If you remember the European winemakers we talked about in the previous episode, the ones who popularized the use of bricks, they did have a problem. They had a storage problem. They needed higher alcohol levels to protect the wine against spoilage. They needed the highest possible juice concentration to convert to as much possible alcohol and keep the wine protected against spoilage during its storage. The irony in coffee is that not only is bricks trying to solve a problem coffee didn't have, often it can create a problem where there previously wasn't one. But never mind that for now, because there is something that's bothering me even more about this topic that I want to talk about. And this means that it is a good point to have a break if you need one. Pause, stretch your legs, grab a snack, make a cup of coffee. Okay, welcome back or kudos for being hardcore and powering through. 
because now I'm going to tell you where this research falls short for me. To be clear, I'm really glad this paper exists, but I think the researchers did us in the industry a great disservice by not including a third measurement. I think there is a huge opportunity that they missed, something that would have transcended the world of academia and actually made the research practical. It would have made the research useful for people whose lives depend on growing and producing coffee. The researchers measured bricks with refractometers and color with a spectroradiometer, but one very helpful element is missing. I wish they would have had experienced pickers rate the color. Because they answered the question that color beats bricks for quality. Like, if you're a producer and you only have the bandwidth to measure or track one thing, pick color over bricks. Every time, color over bricks. But if you're already tracking color and you want to add another measurement, I hope this episode helps you question whether it's really worth your time. Because maybe it's not lowering your quality. Maybe you're fine. But there is always the opportunity cost. What are you not tracking because you're busy looking at bricks? Or what false clues or what false information are you getting from looking at or tracking bricks numbers? Anyway, the point is, I think we can all agree now that color beats bricks. But what about the question of human versus machine? Could the human eye do just as well as the machine? Or is the spectroradiometer really necessary? was the problem that we handed out the wrong tool. Instead of refractometers, should the new party favor be a spectroradiometer? Because I believe this is what BRICS and the use of refractometers are really trying to get at. We believe that if we can use an objective instrument, a sophisticated tool, surely that has to be an improvement over using our flawed and subjective human senses. I believe the real draw to refractometers isn't the argument that bricks is a superior metric than color. I bet most people didn't even think that different colored cherries would have the same bricks level. I believe the real draw to refractometers is the belief that machines are surely better than a human at collecting data, or at least that instruments are an improvement. A way to bring the coffee industry out of its artisanal nature and to bring it into the scientific future. To help put this in context, I need to talk to you about heartbreak. One of the biggest heartbreaks a winemaker can experience is a corked bottle. You remember in the before times when we used to go to restaurants and order wine and the sommelier or the waiter would bring the bottle to the table and they would pour a small amount in your glass for you to smell before you know she poured the rest or poured the rest of the table. They don't do this as a courtesy to see if you like it. They don't care if you like it. They are giving you the sample in the glass to make sure that it's not corked. Only if it is corked can you send it back and ask for another bottle to be opened. Corked is a colloquial term for cork taint, which refers to a wine defect caused by the chemical TCA, which stands for trichloroanisole. Wine can take several years to make. I've talked on the podcast before about the grape harvest and the fermentation and barrel aging and even bottle aging, but I have not yet talked to you guys about one of my most favorite parts of the uh, wine industry, which is corks and cork stoppers and actually really the cork industry. Because most wine is still packaged in glass bottles and corks. The cork is a natural product and it comes from the bark of Quercus suber, commonly called the cork oak. This beautiful tree is a medium-sized evergreen oak tree. 
It is native to southwest Europe and northwest Africa. The tiny country of Portugal accounts for 70% of the world trade of cork. Spain is the second largest exporter of cork. Cork is used in flooring, shoes, insulation, and many other things. But if we are only looking at high-quality wine stoppers, I believe Portugal must be responsible for close to 90% of the world's cork stoppers. And this is not an actual statistic, it's just my impression from working in the industry. That sound you can hear is rain. I hope that it's not too distracting because I have a limited time, so I'm just going to keep going on this episode. Anyway, as we've heard in episode 26, Do Coffee Trees Talk? How Underground Fungi Affect Coffee Quality? There is a strong relationship between trees and fungi. In the case of cork oaks, there is a fungus that can incorporate chlorine compounds in the atmosphere to create the chemical 246-trichloroanisole, or TCA for short, also known as cork taint. If a bottle is corked, it can smell like moldy newspaper, wet dog, dirty dish rag, or damp basement. Definitely not descriptors you would want in something you're about to drink. Previously, when it was only known that the problem was fungus-related, the best way to eliminate fungus was to use bleach. But instead of sanitizing, bleach made the problem worse because bleach has chlorine. So by trying to sanitize and be really clean when producing cork stoppers, the cork producers inadvertently created the conditions for maximum TCA production, and cork taint and the problem got worse when they tried to clean it up. Today, bleach is no longer used to clean cork facilities or wineries for that matter because you can also have the barrels that are made out of oak and then also like pallets. So bleach in wineries is very much uh, frowned upon. And because of that, the rates of cork taint have dramatically reduced. Previously, the industry used to experience a 10 to 15% failure rate of bottles with, um, with tainted cork. Now that we are more aware of the problem, the industry standard is closer to 2-5%, to but it has not been completely eliminated. Whenever you have trees and fungi, you have the opportunity for phenolic compounds like TCA to develop. The coffee industry has its own name, a phenolic taint, or it used to be called Rio taint. There is much less research with coffee and phenolic taint versus wine and phenolic taint, so I don't have it confirmed, but I suspect that coffee phenolic taint is a version of wine cork taint. Okay, side note on this side note, so like tangent on the tangent. One thing that I started to notice as a young winemaking student when I started learning about cork taint was that carrots in the grocery store were often corked. Carrots are grown in soil and have more contact with fungi, And I like carrots and hummus, so I would buy them often, and every once in a while I would get corked carrots. I'm sure other vegetable roots have this issue, Um, I just don't buy ginger or turmeric as often or in as large quantities as I buy carrots, so that's why I think I noticed it in carrots more. I don't think carrots are particularly more susceptible, I just buy like 15 times more carrots than, than ginger or anything else. Sometimes, just walking through a woody forest or even a park, I would get a whiff of TCA. So next time you're walking through a park and it smells like a wet dog and there are no wet dogs around, you're likely smelling TCA. Anyway, back to wine. Imagine as a consumer, you buy a special bottle. You spend significantly more than you usually spend because it's a special bottle. The kind where it hurts a little to hand the money over. I have definitely bought painful wine before. I was in France, so it was 
painful France prices plus painful shipping to get it back into the United States. So you save this special wine for years, waiting for the right moment to pop the cork. And finally, the moment comes. It's a milestone birthday, a promotion, an anniversary, or a wedding, and you're ready to celebrate with that floral and spicy Pinot Noir that you bought several years ago. But when you pop the cork, there is no delicate floral aroma. There is no complex bouquet of clove and cardamom. No. Instead, the wine actually smells and tastes like a damp, moldy basement full of wet dogs wrapped in dirty dish rags. I've been lucky that in all my years of drinking wine in the wild, I have only had wine this bad twice in my life. One was a bottle that I bought, and the other one was at a party. So I know that as a consumer, this sucks. But as a winemaker, this is actually the best case scenario when it comes to cork taint. You can smell this with a TCA concentration of 4 to 5 PPT, which is parts per trillion. Not million, or billion, but trillion. It's easy to throw around measurements like parts per million or parts per billion, but it's really hard for us to imagine how little this is. In terms of TCA, we are talking about a couple parts per trillion. Imagine with me an Olympic-sized swimming pool. The measurements are 50 meters long, 25 meters wide, and 2 meters deep. These pools hold 2.5 million liters of water, or about 660,000 gallons. If I had full strength TCA in an eyedropper, I would have to do a single drip of this eyedropper into the volume held by 15 Olympic-sized swimming pools, which would turn out to be 10 million gallons. And that, one dropper in 10 million gallons, is extremely close to being one part per trillion. So all this to say, it takes very little TCA to ruin a single bottle of wine. I say this is the best case scenario because what I think is worse than getting a corked bottle that is stinky and unpleasant is getting a corked bottle with a slightly lower TCA concentration. If you get a corked bottle at a concentration of 1 to 3 parts per trillion, it will not be so offensive. The wet dog smell will not leap out. Instead, the wine will be muted, the aromas will be silent. What was once a fragrant bouquet of fruit, herbs, and spices will just smell faint or like nothing. It will be so slight that the untrained nose will not connect it to the cork and will not realize or will not recognize it as a defect. The untrained nose will just think that it's the winemaker's fault, not the cork. An untrained nose will just think that it's a boring wine not worth their time, and that's how a winery can lose a customer for life. But if a bottle has high levels of cork taint, it's really easy to recognize with any nose. You don't have to have a trained nose. Um, And then you can blame the cork, not the wine or the winemaker. This is where if you're in a restaurant and you order a bottle and they bring it to you, they give you a little taste to smell, and it smells like a wet dog or a dirty basement or a dirty dish rag, this is the only point where you can tell them discreetly that the bottle is corked and that you would like another one. So how much of a problem is this? How much of a problem are corked bottles? Well, Wine Spectator was trying to find out. Wine Spectator is an American lifestyle magazine that focuses on wine and wine culture. This magazine has its headquarters in Napa, California. In 2005, Wine Spectator held a blind tasting at their facility. They studied 2,800 bottles and found that 7% of the bottles were tainted. 
This was surprising because of all of the improvements that cork producers were making, most of us in the industry believed that that number was less than 5%. Personally, I still find this figure to be quite high. When I worked in Napa, the percentage at my winery was closer to 15 to 2%. We knew this because there was a tasting room and every single month, the tasting room opened hundreds of bottles for visitors and we kept a record of every single opened bottle and if that bottle passed or failed. And there were usually three or four of us who could smell the bottle before it was poured for a guest. So every single bottle was pre-screened before it was being um, poured out. And in addition to that, the information from the tasting room, we would also get feedback from restaurants if a customer ever returned a bottle. There at the restaurant, we'd have to replace it, and so we would know exactly how many bottles were um, failures. And one of my jobs was to update and maintain these spreadsheets and to send out a monthly report to the winemaking team to tell them, you know, how we were doing, if cork, if cork numbers were up or if they were down. So this meant that I had uh, hundreds of data points, right? Hundreds of bottles opened every single month over years, maybe 10 or 15 years um, of data. So I was constantly looking at these cork numbers. And if something looked a little bit different one month or another, I would be able to correlate the rejection numbers to perhaps having changed a cork supplier or maybe we started buying from a different part of a forest, from an existing cork supplier, things like that. I was up to my eyeballs in cork data for years. How do wineries reduce cork taint and retain customers? Well, some do very little and accept a 2 to 5 or even 7% failure rate. They build it into their margin and they know that they will have to replace spoiled bottles or give refunds. Some give up on corks altogether and use screw caps or plastic corks, which higher-end consumers generally do not like. It's rare to see a $500 bottle of red wine with a screw cap. You're much more likely to see screw caps on uh, white wine and also inexpensive wine. Although I personally think screw caps are great, they are a different aesthetic, so high-end wineries have been slow to embrace them. And the wineries that are committed to cork but want to reduce their failure rate spend more money to buy more expensive corks that perhaps are harvested up higher in the tree. Because cork bark that is closer to the ground has a higher rate of TCA because, again, it's closer to the ground, it can be contaminated much more easily. Another method is to get cork from older trees with a thicker bark layer. If you harvest quickly, the tree is not so thick, the bark of the tree is not so thick, and you have to punch the corks closer to the outer bark where, again, there is a higher chance of having uh, contact with the fungi and for TCA to develop. But if you wait longer, you can get cork that is closer to the belly of the tree, and the bark that is closer to the belly um, is more protected against TCA. So that would be the difference of maybe harvesting every seven years to harvesting every 10 years. So several years ago, I went on a buying trip to Portugal and got to visit the forest and the facilities that produce cork. I could talk about cork all day, like cork makeup, which is not makeup that's made out of cork. It's actually the makeup that they put on ugly lower grade corks to look prettier. And then the cork prices and the industry in Portugal and the craftsmanship involved in harvesting from oak trees. Because like I mentioned, you have to wait between 20 to 30 years for the first harvest. But then you can go back and harvest more cork every 7 to 10 years. And the trees can live to be up to 200 years old. So a tree can provide up to 14 barkings. I think that's really funny. That's what it's called. It's a barking when you harvest the cork. 
So imagine if you're not skilled, a lot is at stake. If you damage a single tree, the economic loss can be dramatic. Usually in coffee, we think of coffee pickers as unskilled labor. Yes, it's incredibly difficult, intense work, but almost anyone can walk up to a coffee tree and start to handpick the red cherries. As long as you're not overly aggressive, the coffee tree will survive your amateur, unskilled picking efforts. The cork harvesters, on the other hand, have special tools and require a high level of skill to remove the correct layers of bark tissue without causing damage to the tree. It's common for the harvesters to be paid better than the workers in the processing facilities. Isn't that wild? Can you imagine if a coffee picker was better paid than a mill manager or a roaster? This is how much Portugal values their cork harvesters. Anyway, like I said, I could talk about cork all day. I think it's a fascinating industry, but I'll move on to the point that I'm trying to make because I promise there is a point. So switching to screw caps is a personal decision with many factors. At the winery where I worked, we were not going to abandon cork for screw caps. We wanted the artisanal nature of corks with the security of a screw cap, so what we did was screen the corks. Basically, the TCA is trapped in the cork until it comes into contact with the wine. The alcohol in the wine extracts the TCA out of the cork and that's how it contaminates the liquid wine. So you can't know if the cork has TCA until after you've bottled your wine, when it's too late. For screening corks, you can't just smell the dry cork and see if it has TCA. You need a solvent to extract the TCA and then you smell the solvent, not the cork. So the only way to screen is to soak the corks. Many years ago, the TV show Saturday Night Live did a skit about cork soaking, which is actually really random and niche and I'm surprised it was on like such a big show. Um, and I also apologize to international listeners because it's a really difficult to get the joke unless you have an American sense of humor, which in this case is very vulgar. Um, but if you're curious, I invite you to Google it. And at the very least, you can see a very young Janet Jackson trying to act. So that's the cork soaking skit. But my all-time favorite wine skit is actually one with John C. Riley, And I'm just going to include that in the show notes because, I don't know, it, it cracks me up and makes me laugh. And it has absolutely nothing to do with today's episode. So go ahead and ignore this, skip it, whatever. Or if you've got the moment, go check out those, those videos because they crack me up. Okay, back to the cork soakers. The wine industry standard is to soak the corks in very cheap wine or ethanol and smell the liquid. Many high-end wineries buy cheap boxed wine, like Franzia, by the pallet. By the pallet, you guys, just for the purpose of screening cork. It's really funny to walk into a high-end winery and just see pallets and pallets of cheap boxed wine. I'm convinced that at least, I don't know, 20% of box and jug wine sales are coming directly from the wine industry itself. Like, it's just like this, like, circular consumption. And we do this because this cheap wine is used as a screening device. So from Portugal, cork is shipped in bales with about 10,000 corks per bale. Usually, the cork company takes a representative sample, like 50 random corks, and soaks them overnight in cheap wine or ethanol. And the next day, you smell the liquid to see if the whole bale passes. It's very similar to cupping an arrival sample. So they do this in Portugal before they even export the samples, and then the cork sellers in the U.S. do it again, so where it's imported, they do it again to make sure that what was shipped is what actually arrived. 
and this gives a pretty good idea of how clean a batch of corks is. And for many wineries, this is enough. But my winery went a step further. Instead of soaking corks that represented larger batches, meaning 50 corks to represent tens of thousands, we would soak every single cork. And then we would smell the liquid, and if the corks passed the test, then those exact same corks would be dried, and then we would use that same cork that was screened and passed the test, and then we would bottle, um, we would bottle the wine with that specific cork. And this way, we could guarantee 100% that when you bought a bottle, it would not have cork taint. This was an enormous amount of work. The setup was epic. Every day for months, I would sew corks overnight, and then the next morning, the winemaking team would smell the corks, and we would screen the contaminated from the clean, and then I would dry the corks that we smelled, and then store them for a couple of months until it was time to, to bottle. And this process took about, I don't know, five or six months of the year, uh, almost five days a week, screening corks. And it took up a lot of time because everyone on the winemaking team, so it was about five, um, sometimes six people, uh, because the, corks reps, the cork reps would come and they had to, all of us, smell the liquid and see if the corks um, passed or failed. So daily in my lab, there would be a table with 100 little glasses to smell and then a sheet with 100 spots, and if you smelled a defect, you had to mark it. So you times that by four to seven people per day, and you have thousands of data points per week. If you subscribe to my newsletter, I've shared pictures of this uh, cork harvest, and then also how I used to soak corks in the lab. And let me tell you, it takes a lot of dishes. So for months and for thousands of data points, we were relying on our noses to detect TCA at a crazy small levels. Remember the 15 Olympic-sized pools? And humans make mistakes, and you get tired, and your senses get fatigued. So we thought there has to be a better way, a more scientific way, that doesn't rely on humans because humans can be unreliable. And there is. It's called HPLC. This stands for High Performance Liquid Chromatography. I will not tell you how HPLC works, because if you stuck with me through the cork part of this podcast, I would certainly lose you if I tried to describe how an HPLC worked. But anyway, there is an HPLC that we had um, in the lab, and we would load it up with the samples, and if there was TCA in the liquid, the instrument would separate out the components of the liquid, and not only would it tell us if there was TCA in the sample, but it would also tell us what the level was. So our human noses could only have like a yes-no function, and this, uh, this instrument could tell us if it was two parts per trillion or five parts per trillion. So we got the machine, and instead of switching over to the new method, for close to one year, we did a side-by-side trial of the human noses versus the HPLC. So every day, the corks were soaked, we smelled the liquid, And then the same liquid that the human smelled was run through the instrument to see if the HPLC picked up more than the humans did, right? To see if there were any samples that we missed and then also to tell us the level. So this machine cost about $90,000 and we also needed an intern who was almost completely dedicated to this work and to the maintenance of the machine because this is a high maintenance piece of equipment. It's incredibly sensitive and specialized. So we were constantly needing to calibrate it, to run controls, to replace parts, to change tubes, to check light bulbs, and to clean out samples. So the slow human method was a lot of work 
and we were hoping the machine could pick up on even more TCA that the human noses missed due to fatigue. We were expecting the end results to show that the HPLC caught even more TCA that might have gone undetected. But that is not what happened. At the end of one year, we found that the sophisticated machine did just as well as the humans did in picking up the defect. Human noses are incredible instruments, and trained human noses are even better. And it was interesting to be able to know if some of the taints were at two parts per trillion or three parts or four parts or five parts, but really at the end of the day, what was important was our binary noses, like was there a defect or not? And yeah, even though it was really interesting to know the actual level, what mattered was that we found a defect and that 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 cork was screened out of the pile. So eventually, at the end of the trial, the machine was returned and we kept using our human noses over the expensive equipment. So the moral of the story is that even though we were very motivated to move away from using humans because we believed it was an upgrade to go from human sense to scientific instrument, sometimes our human senses are still a very, very good option. In the case with coffee, I believe that human eyeballs are better than refractometers at indicating ripeness. What I don't know is if human eyeballs are just as good as spectroradiometers, or better, or worse. The researchers in the BBC study could have helped us by testing human eyes against the spectroradiometer to see if a trained coffee picker with like a 5 cent colored wristband could pick out the right red colored cherries, or if we truly need a machine to get us in the 630 to 680 nanometer wavelength. And if we knew that, then maybe I would advocate roasters and importers gifting that tool, gifting a spectral radiometer instead of gifting a refractometer to coffee producers. So those are my thoughts on color and ripeness and machines versus humans. But the episode is not done. You guys, I still have more to say about bricks. Can you believe it? <laughs> uh, if you want to take a break, I guess this would be a good time to take a second break. If you want to uh, come back to this later, because this was a lot of information, if you're trying to download it, and <laughs> this is not a podcast for easy listening. Um, but if not, let's power through, because now we're going to get back to the mystery of why Bricks is actually really bad at determining ripeness. Because as the paper has shown, not only does it not point to ripeness, but it is often more correlated to lower quality. So the question is, why is BRICS so unreliable? Well, there are many reasons for this, but this episode is already long enough, so I will only mention a few reasons. Let's think back to how sugars get into the cherry. Sugars get into the coffee fruit through photosynthesis. Plants convert light energy into glucose and oxygen. Plants make sugars, but then they need to be transferred from the leaves into the fruit. My understanding from grape development is that one big difference between sugars and acids is that sugars are shuttled into the fruit while acids are synthesized in the fruit itself. Okay, I just mentioned acids. Be patient, we will get to acids soon on the podcast. I've heard from many of you who want me to do an episode on acids, so that, that is in the works. Anyway, back to sugar. One of the most interesting things I learned from Sam Knowlton when we did the Worms and Germs presentation is that up to 60% of the sugar that a plant produces is not for the plant itself, 
the plant doesn't keep all of the sugar it produces. It can give up to 60% of its sugar away to the microbes in its fungal network. It feeds the soil network more than it feeds itself. We talked a lot about this wood wide web in episode 26. I think this is really amazing. It's like a, a generous citizen feeding its neighbors. I'll also leave a link in the show notes to the Worms and Germs presentation if you want to learn about the sugar and fermentation link. But right now, we are just talking about sugar from photosynthesis being transferred into the fruit. So why doesn't more sugar, for example higher bricks, correlate with ripeness? Logic and our taste buds tell us that ripe fruit has more sugar than unripe fruit. But as I covered in the previous episode, bricks doesn't directly measure absolute sugar quantity. Here's the trap. Bricks is not a measurement of absolute sugar content, it's a concentration of the density of plant juice. A high concentration can happen two ways. Sugar can be shuttled into the fruit, or water can be pulled out. Also, water can be pulled in and dilute the concentration. For example, if it rains a lot, um, a plant can take up more water, and if maybe yesterday or two days ago you had a really high bricks reading, and there's a rain, and you test the coffee again, then your bricks reading will go down. If this happened, you wouldn't say that the plant got less ripe, just because it rained, but you would see that the rain would cause a lower bricks reading. Another thing to keep in mind is that a plant cannot infinitely shuttle sugar into the fruit. There is an upper limit. In grapes, we know what that limit is. In coffee, I'm not sure if the research has been done. But for example, in grapes, we know that the upper limit of bricks is between 22 and 24. When you get grapes with a bricks of 25 or above, you're not measuring more sugar quantity. Remember, it's a concentration, so we know that at that point, we're really measuring less water. You're measuring dehydration, and dehydration is correlated to stress and less health. So very high BRICS numbers are misleading because often people think that a high BRICS number is indicating a lot of sugar and therefore a lot of ripeness and good quality. But most of the time, they are indicating the opposite. They are indicating that the fruit was stressed, that it is unhealthy, that the plant is out of balance. Once we can disconnect bricks and sugar and we link it instead to concentration, it's more obvious how higher bricks is more associated with lower quality coffee. When I see posts on Instagram with very proudly displaying bricks above 20, I worry about that coffee. Another reason why bricks is unreliable goes back to color. The other interesting point about color versus bricks that you might still be puzzled by is why the outer skin gives a better indication of ripeness than the inner juice. The juice and the mucilage are inside the fruit. They are closer to the seed. I can see the logic in thinking that the inside of the fruit is a better indicator than the outer shell, than the outer shell, the tissue that is furthest away from the seed. This would be true for another fruit. For example, there are oranges that have a green rind and you know, green outer skin. And if you look at them, they look unripe. After all, ripe oranges are usually bright orange. But if you cut open these green oranges inside, they are perfectly ripe and sweet and delicious. The outer skin color is misleading. If you wanna know if the fruit is ripe, you should cut it open and look at the juice, measure the juice, take the bricks. In this case, bricks would be a helpful measurement to determine the ripeness of the orange. But coffee fruit doesn't work like this. Coffee is a special case because we don't care about the fruit. It's the seed that we want. 
Coffee fruit is secondary. Well, actually, coffee fruit is a waste product. The economically important part is the seed. It's really wild when you think about it this way, because we measure the bricks of the juice, and then we throw that part away, and then we keep the part, the seed, that we never measure, and then we think that the juice, something that we measured in the juice, can tell us something about the condition of the seed. I just wish more people could picture the silliness of measuring the part of the fruit that we throw away and then keeping the seed which we don't measure. Anyway, another important distinction is that sugar is translocated from the leaves into the fruit. But once the fruit is picked and separated from the plant, there is no consensus among scientists that sugar in the mucilage can penetrate into the seed. Many in the coffee industry believe sugar in the mucilage can penetrate the seed, but the research does not support this. With oranges or wine, bricks measurements are relevant because you eat the orange pulp or because the grape juice is what gets turned into wine. But coffee cherry juice? That just goes down the drain. It's kind of like going to the doctor for a sprained ankle and they start doing a chest x-ray. You know the issue is your ankle, So let's look at the thing that we are concerned about and not another place just because we have a tool for it. A refractometer is cheap, it's easy, it's a really fast measurement, and you look pretty cool looking through a refractometer. I'm convinced that BRICS is so popular because number one, it's misunderstood, but also because it's really easy to measure. This method is also called the streetlight effect or the drunkard's search principle. Both names refer to a well-known joke. A policeman sees a drunk man searching for something underneath a streetlight and asks what the drunk has lost. He says he has lost his keys and they both look under the streetlight together. After a few minutes, the policeman asks if he is sure he has lost them here and the drunk replies, no, that he lost them in the park. The policeman asks why he is searching here instead of the park and the drunk replies, well, this is where the light is. The streetlight effect is a type of observational bias that occurs when people only search for something where it is easiest to look. It's really easy to look at the juice and very difficult to look at the coffee seed. So I get it, it's super tempting. But the other thing that's interesting is the coffee cherry skin. The cascara is also a waste product. It also gets thrown away and it isn't used in coffee. So why is that a relevant indicator when the juice isn't? We have two parts of the coffee fruit that we throw away, the skin and the pulp and the, and the juice, and we only keep the seed. But one of those that we throw away is actually helpful in telling us something about the seed, and the other one isn't. So unlike bricks, there's a lot more research that reinforces using the skin as an indicator. The digital image of coffee fruits has been used to accomplish different purposes. There's a paper in 2002 that applied the coffee fruit image analysis to identify impurities in mixtures of coffee beans. Uh, In 2003, Pinto et al. used the chromatic information of the coffee fruit in the visible range to estimate the fruit water content. There's another paper in 2011 that used coffee fruit image analysis for evaluating the physiological quality of coffee seeds, meaning they were able to determine the seed vigor and estimate the seed germination potential. So these three things, identifying impurities, determining water content, and germination potential have all been determined with an image. The outside of the coffee fruit can tell us a lot about what is inside. It can tell us a lot about the seed. 
These are all things that the juice, or measuring the juice, measuring the bricks, cannot tell us. And for this part to make sense, we have to think about the dispersal mechanism. We have to think about the coffee plant making ripe cherries look very attractive to animals so that they will come and eat the cherries and then you know, process the, the seed through their digestive tract and then poop them out in new places and new coffee plants can emerge. So there is a very strong incentive on the plant's behalf to make the fruit be very visually attractive so that animals can come and spread it in other places. That's why this part that we throw away, this, this skin, is a really good indicator of seed quality because we know that as long as the skin is beautiful and attractive to an animal, or even us as a consumer, then the seed is a viable seed that will have good germination and be able to you know, replicate the plant in new locations. And despite this information, bricks will still continue to be a popular measurement, and I think people will continue to want to you know, collect it or brag about it, brag about very high numbers, and maybe it's fine. So if you're a producer and you're collecting bricks numbers and you feel like it's helping, then I think that's great. You know, keep on keeping on. Even a broken clock will be right twice a day. But if you started measuring bricks and haven't seen an improvement, I think it's okay to stop. And if you're thinking about starting to measure it, again, I hope you will reconsider that there are better uses of your time and better indicators. And here we are. You have made it to the end of this episode, the end of this three-part series on just really just like Lucia ranting on why I don't like bricks. Um, but I hope you learned something. I hope that some of these concepts are more clear. I hope that you've gotten some resources if you want to read the original research yourself or other places to look to you know, figure out how this applies to you. Are you looking for more coffee learning? At the end of the last few episodes, I've recommended other podcasts to you that I have enjoyed. Today, instead of a podcast, I want to tell you about an event that's coming up that I'm personally interested in, and I think you will be too. My podcast is all about free, accessible information, and so is a new digital coffee conference produced by the Barista League. The conference is called High Density, and it's 100% free and focuses on practical information that you can put to use immediately. The event takes place on March 9th, and it features talks by several of my favorite people in coffee, like Evermeister, Ashley Rodriguez of Boss Barista Podcast, Sunghee Tark, and producer Elaine Mirsch. If you're interested in deepening your coffee knowledge, register for free at thebaristaleague.com. If you want to be notified when a new episode comes out, join my infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. That's L-U-X-I-A dot coffee. I promise I send an email out either once a month or at most twice a month. Um, and if you sign up, you'll also get a chance to see the pictures related to the episodes. For example, in this email episode, I included pictures of the cork harvest and soaking. So some of the things that might make these episodes a little bit, make a little bit more sense. Um, and if you want to talk about sugar and coffee related things with me or other podcast listeners, other roasters, other producers, other coffee enthusiasts, you can chat with all of us on Discord and you can sign up for the Discord through Patreon. That is all for now. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for being with me through these episodes. I, I really appreciate an opportunity to share all of this information and I hope it was helpful to you. So that's all for now. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. 
Thank you.